Hello and welcome to the Building State Capability at Harvard University's Long Read podcast series. Hello, I'm Dr. Alice Evans, a lecturer at King's College London and a faculty associate at Harvard at Kennedy School. So my paper is entitled How Cities Erode Gender Inequality, a new theory and evidence from Cambodia. Support for gender equality has increased globally, and studies of this trend usually examine individual and or country-level factors. However, this overlooks some national variation. City dwellers are much more likely to support gender equality in education, employment, leadership, and leisure. This article investigates the causes of rural-urban differences through comparative, qualitative research in Cambodia. The emergence of rural garment factories presents a a quasi-natural experiment to test the theory that female employment enhances support for gender equality. Rural female employment may diminish rural-urban differences in gender inequalities, or there may be other important aspects of city living beyond female employment that amplify support for gender equality. So, drawing on Cambodian fieldwork, I suggest that cities raise the opportunity costs of the male breadwinner model, increase exposure to women in socially valued roles, and provide more associational avenues to collectively contest established practices. So interests, exposure, and association reinforce a snowballing process of social change. By investigating the causes of subnational variation, I advance a new theory of growing support for gender equality. Right, that was the abstract. Now let's crack on. So, there are many hotly contested debates in gender studies, but here are three points of agreement. First, support for gender equality has increased in many countries over the past five decades. Second, support is usually higher in cities. Third, Gender relations are not only shaped by individual characteristics, but also macro-level structures and interactional contexts, including local norms. So, scholars have debated why gender relations are changing over time. This article engages with that debate through comparative rural and urban fieldwork, interviewing long-term residents as well as rural-urban migrants. In doing so, I examine why social change is faster in cities. By contrast, most analyses of growing support for gender equality focus on micro and or macro levels characteristics. So micro level variables include whether an educated or employed woman is more likely to stand for political office, share care work or support gender equality. Macro level studies often explore cross national trends such as whether higher levels of female employment are associated with more equitable divisions of leadership and or care work. So these macro-level studies usually incorporate national averages, omitting subnational variation. But national averages, aggregate rates of female employment, are unlikely to directly influence individuals' aspirations, expectations, ideologies, and relationships. No one sees or lives amid a national average. Individuals develop their aspirations and expectations through observation of their specific locales, their village, town, or city. So their place-based experiences can differ considerably, even within a single country. And although many scholars regard it as a truism that support for gender equality is higher in cities, they rarely explain subnational variation in gender relations or use these empirical observations to theorize rising support for gender equality.
There is also scope to fine-tune our theorization of social norms. Again, norms strongly influence gender relations, often more so than individual characteristics. People's concerns about how they will be perceived and treated by others may lead them to moderate their occupational choices, share of care work, sexual practices, living arrangements, political participation and leadership. So expectations can motivate compliance, often reinforcing inequalities. However, the mechanisms by which norms influence behaviour are rarely articulated. Some conceptualize norms as behavioral trends. Others see them as, and I quote, collective definitions of socially approved conduct, end quote. Not individual consciousness, but properties of a community. But how do these widespread practices, conventions, and intersubjective meanings actually influence people's behavior, motivate compliance, and thereby perpetuate inequalities? Further, what are norms, if not reducible to mental states? So more theoretical work is needed to clarify the ontology and causation to explain why people challenge or conform to widespread practices. I suggest we focus on people's reasons for acting, their beliefs and desires. Within beliefs, we can distinguish between an individual's internalized gender stereotypes, their unquestioned assumptions about members of a gender, and their norm perceptions, their beliefs about what others think and do. This distinction recognizes that someone might, be, might privately disavow gender stereotypes, yet nonetheless comply with widespread practices because of concerns about how they will be perceived and treated by others. So stereotypes and norm perceptions are both learnt by observation of the world. By interacting with others, people gauge which behaviors are widely practiced and supported in their communities. The belief that peers will chastise deviation furnishes individuals with a self-interested reason to conform. If everyone else complies, we assume collective approval, not recognizing that others may be privately critical. We only revise our norm perceptions when we witness widespread behavioral change. But if beliefs only change after witnessing behavioral change, what catalyzes initial behavioral change amid risks of social censure. How do we overcome this chicken and egg problem? So, drawing on comparative rural-urban research, this article explores how cities erode gender inequality in Cambodia. First, the high cost of urban living and the growth of industries seeking women such as manufacturing and services, have increased the opportunity cost of gender divisions of labor. This raises self-interested support for female employment. Second, cities have increased exposure to disruption and deviation. Given the density, diversity, and interconnectedness of Cambodian cities, urban residents live amid myriad encroachments, experiments, and attempts to push boundaries. By seeing scores of women demonstrate their equal competence in socially valued domains, urban residents come to question their gender ideologies. Third, cities enable association. Gathering together after work, urban residents have more opportunities to share, learn from, and be inspired by and collectively rethink heterogeneous gender ideologies and practices. So association and exposure reinforce a positive feedback loop with growing flexibility in gender divisions of labor. 
This article uses comparative rural urban research to analyze why city living erodes gender inequality. So now we move to the next section, the drivers of gender equality. Over the past five decades, in many countries, there has been growing support for female education, employment, and political leadership. Possible drivers of these temporal changes include the rise of time-saving domestic appliances and con contraceptive devices, shifting opportunity costs to gender divisions of labor, and exposure to women in socially valued roles. These are all theories of change over time. Now, can they also account for rural-urban differences? If not, we might question whether they fully explain the drivers of gender equality. Some argue that time-saving devices such as household appliances and contraception reduced women's care work and catalyzed growing uh, female labor force participation in the U.S. Such technologies, along with electrification and safe water access, are more accessible in cities. Could this explain some national variation in gender relations? Well, this may be part of the explanation, but perhaps incomplete. Less care work may not be enough to catalyze shifts in gender practices and beliefs, as we see from geographical comparisons. Fertility has rapidly declined in South Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa, yet female labor force participation remains low. Meanwhile, in sub-Saharan Africa, fertility remains high, but so too is female labor force participation. Further, female labor force participation is often higher in rural areas, notwithstanding rural women's lower access to appliances and larger volumes of care work. Many women just work incredibly long days without reward or recognition. Rising opportunity costs are another possible driver of female employment. As US young men's uh, wages fell in the 1970s and 1980s, families could no longer rely on a male breadwinner. So they came to regard female employment as advantageous. Likewise in Indonesia, a long dry season and a monetary crisis in 98 precipitated increased support for female factory work. In Zambia too, worsening economic security triggered fema rising female employment. So across the world, female labor force participation is often counter-cyclical. The opportunity cost of women staying at home also increases with the growth of sectors seeking women workers, which is manufacturing, tourism, healthcare, and call centers. So this theory that female employment rises with opportunity cost could explain rural-urban differences. Opportunity costs may be greater in cities due to higher land and living costs, as well as more sectors seeking stereotypically feminine characteristics, rather than physical strength. Studies on rural-urban migration support this hypothesis. So as a rural-urban migrant from Inner Mongolia explained, back in the village, others would laugh at me if I'd let my woman go outside and do this dirty job before. But here... In the city, it's impossible for me to sustain my livelihood of my household alone, end quote. So the high cost of urban living provides a financial incentive to forego concerns about social respect. Self-interest helps overcome the aforementioned chicken and egg problem. However, economic self-interest does not provide a full explanation of rural urban differences in gender beliefs and practices. Research in 20 low- and middle-income countries finds that... Notwithstanding poverty, 
rural families are less likely to acknowledge, appreciate, and applaud female labor force participation. Perhaps if people do not see many women demonstrating equal competence in socially valued domains, they may not even contemplate it, let alone regard it as beneficial. Further, even if rural women are earning money, something else may be required to undermine gender discrimination. So besides economic self-interest, we also need to recognize beliefs. A growing literature suggests that people develop their gender ideologies through observation of the world. If people see only men in socially valued roles, they may doubt women's equal competence and regard their encroachments into male-dominated domains as risky and inappropriate. Given confirmation bias, people tend to ignore information that contradicts their assumption, dismissing exceptions as outliers, not disproving stereotypes about the typical man or woman. So people are much more inclined to question their ideologies when they see multiple, a multitude of counterexamples through, you know, prolonged exposure to flexibility and gender divisions of labor. But herein lies a conundrum. Without widespread exposure to women demonstrating equal competence in socially valued domains, gender beliefs endure, inhibiting behavioral change. How do societies overcome this chicken and egg problem. These theories of change over time all focus on female employment, widely regarded as an important catalyst of gender equality. But perhaps they overlook another important catalyst. Support for gender equality is often higher in cities, yet our existing theories of growing support for gender equality do not fully explain these rural-urban differences. This creates a puzzle. Drawing on comparative rural urban research in Cambodia, I suggest that cities may raise the opportunity cost of gender divisions of labor, increase exposure to women in socially valued domains, and provide more avenues to collectively contest established practices. Interests, exposure, and association reinforce a snowballing process of social change. So I am keen to understand what drives support for gender equality, test the widely accepted hypothesis that female employment is catalytic, and consider what else besides female employment might explain rural-urban differences. Cambodia is an ideal case study. The growth of garment factories in rural Cambodia has created a labor demand shock. This enables me to test whether rising female employment a shift in individual characteristics, increases support for gender equality in villages, why rural gender inequalities might still persist, and what further dynamics in cities might be important. Qualitative fieldwork was undertaken in July to September 2016 with more than 50 participants, who included long-term rural and urban residents, rural and urban migrants, rural and urban factory workers, farmers, prosperous traders, teachers, political activists, university students on scholarships, lecturers, and local government officials. Migrants' life histories were particularly valuable by listening to their narratives, understanding how city living had affected their beliefs and practices, I could test the alternative hypothesis that more progressive people moved to cities. This research was located in three sites, the capital, Phnom Penh, and two villages in Kandal and Takao provinces, each within a few kilometers of a garment factory, clinics, and police posts. These villages were within two hours' drive of the capital Phnom Penh, via Tarmat Road. Both sites were enmeshed in rural-urban flows, circular migration, remittances, goods, and uh, ICTs. The Kandal village was not poor. They were middle-income farmers on historically fertile land. 
by purposefully selecting villages that were not extremely poor and by interviewing rural urban migrants from across the socioeconomic spectrum, I tried to examine the effects of place rather than income. To undertake this research, I collaborated with Rosa Yee, who lectures on gender and development issues at the Royal University of Phnom Penh. The Kandal site is his home village. Rosa's in-depth local knowledge, familiarity, and rapport with the villagers greatly enhanced the research process. We recognized that participants' self-presentations were inevitably influenced by our identities. For instance, they might have exaggerated their support for gender equality, thinking this would be welcomed by me, a white Western researcher and possible source of financial support. Accordingly, we took great care to introduce ourselves as being interested in the village and ongoing socioeconomic changes more broadly. We listened and followed their narratives, downplaying our interest in gender and rural urban differences. We did not presuppose or predefine gender inequality, but rooted our analysis in participants' perspectives. This enabled attention to unanticipated issues, such as everyday public discussions and leisure. We also spent time with participants, joining their routines at the village cafe, market, garment factory, harvesting grass, hanging out in the city and the university campus. In Candell, we stayed at Rosa's family home with his 72-year-old mother. Throughout the research process, we collectively reflected on findings, identifying common and divergent themes, asking his mother for her perspectives on rural narratives, devising further lines of inquiry. So the data was recorded, then transcribed into English and transferred into software enabling qualitative text analysis in Vivo 11. The data were then coded using emergent themes and sub-themes, such as on the way in which uh, gender relations are or are not changing, such as the rising su uh, support for female employment, as well as the drivers of these changes, you know, living costs, environmental shocks. And then everyone's names have been changed to preserve anonymity. New section. Cities as catalysts of social change. Begin, quote, what a man can do, a woman can do, end quote. Reiterated, separately interviewed female undergraduates in Phnom Penh. Had they ever heard such discourse back in the village? No, they shook their heads. Indeed, this adage captures urban discourses of equality in urban but not rural Cambodia. Urban women are increasingly venturing into historically masculine domains of education, employment, public discussions and leisure. In Cambodian towns and cities, early marriage and teenage pregnancy are lower. The total fertility rate is almost one child less, and gender gaps in literacy are smaller, as are differences in average monthly earnings and occupations. Women technicians earn 13% less than their male counterparts in urban areas, but 35% less in rural areas. Only 12% of managers are women in rural areas, as compared to 42% in urban areas. So even in occupations not requiring physical strength, gender inequalities are still larger in rural areas. In Cambodian towns and cities, the opportunity cost of women staying at home has greatly increased with the rise in urban living costs and sectors seeking female laborers. In their struggles to manage school fees, rent, healthcare, and competitive consumption, urban residents increasingly support female employment. Financial incentives outweigh countervailing norm perceptions, you know, lauding the male breadwinner and female purity. By seeing neighbours prosper through female employment, others come to recognise its benefits and follow suit, explained multiple generations of urban residents. 
rise in female employment appears to shift gender ideologies. Urban residents and migrants detailed how prolonged exposure to women successfully performing socially valued roles led them to regard women as equally competent and deserving of status. Cham, a 24-year-old on a full university scholarship, interviewed next to his father's cowshed, explained that on arrival in Phnom Penh, I was surprised because I had just left a village where men like me feel they are better, more knowledgeable. Men are supposed to be the head of the household. Men are supposed to travel far, to do business, while women stay at home and take care of the family. So I didn't take girls' ideas seriously. I thought I was more intelligent, and I expected them to follow my ideas. That was translated. So in village life, Cham explained, most people are farmers, interacting with other farmers with similar experiences and outlook. So, and I quote, you don't really have new knowledge. People know similar things, so they repeat similar things. Rural people are left behind. How they see women has not changed much over time. They still perceive women as housewives. End translation. So such expectations, together with concerns for safety, lead many rural parents to restrict their daughter's movements. But in the city, parents seem much more supportive of their daughter's independent mobility and occupations. In Phnom Penh, Chan was astonished to see, and I begin, quote, female lecturers, female heads of department, a lot of women working in the university, and many female class monitors, end quote. He also attended non-governmental organization events and watched a documentary on gender equality. He discussed these ideas with a friend who volunteered for an NGO and who explained that Cambodian women soldiers played an important role in securing independence from France. A surprised Cham, who had previously regarded women as weak and fearful. But through cumulative exposure to women in positions of authority, gender sensitization and discussion, he came to champion gender equality. Cham also remarked on gender, on rural-urban differences in public spaces. Begun quote. The cafe. It's public, so it's a space for men. If women go, women will be considered like an imperfect woman. In Phnom Penh, you will also find a cafe like that for men. But a local cafe like this is generally for old people. Women don't go. I've never been to one like that in Phnom Penh. At university, we go to the canteen regularly as a group, men and women. Translated. So these themes of urban exposure and association were widely reiterated by rural urban migrants. Young migrants emphasized their enjoyment of diverse associations, learning new ideas, and seeing women in unexpected domains. Many had previously presumed women were, and I quote, passive, dependents, end quote, unable to perform socially valued roles. Chenda, a female rural urban migrant a student, remarked, when women are housewives, they are submissive. They are told to do, directed to do. It's not really equal. They did not have enough freedom. I think people are the same. We want to go out. But her husband think, every day you have been fed by me, so you cannot do anything without my agreement. I've been experiencing this. Women here, students, staff, government worker, office worker, they have to go to work on a daily basis to get money. Without any job, how can they live? At the first time seeing this, it surprised me a lot because I had experienced that women could only be a housewife and do house jobs like cooking, cleaning, caring for children. When I come to Phnom Penh, things just changed. Women have the same intellectual ability and physical ability. Gender equality.
End quote. So exposure and association were also emphasized by three rural urban migrants. Um, these were trainee flight attendants. Uh, Son, Baba, and Chanda. So Son said, I meet new people. We share our ideas. But in rural areas, we're just stuck with the old ideas. The idea is stuck because we don't go out. Whereas here in the city, I feel wonderful. Seeing women dress up beautifully, earn their own living. And then Bopa said, I saw a woman driving a tuk-tuk. Now it's common. It really impressed me. Because what a man can do, a woman can do, added Son. And then Chanda beamed. It shows men I can do it. So exposure to a multitude of people deviating from traditional practices seems to increase people's confidence in the possibility of social change. So it's not only affecting their internalized ideologies, but also their norm perceptions. And this creates mutually reinforcing incremental experiments of minor transgressions. Having enviously eyed their friends doing homework, young girls pressure their parents to send them to school. As low-income hawkers develop wide social networks and seek out information to get by in the city, they learn about alternative practices and ideologies. After seeing housework being shared by male neighbors, garment workers encourage their husbands to follow suit. Not all requests are heeded, of course. Sarai, a rural urban uh, garment worker, now exposed to more cooperative, mutually supportive urban marriages, came to regard her own husband as, and I quote, Useless, not entitled to leisure or her devotion. So having seen more equitable relations, she came to expect and demand more. He refused, and she promptly divorced him. Other influences include hearing peers and NGOs champion equality, watching powerful role models in films, as well as reading media accounts of successful women at home and abroad. This has increased of late with more donor funding for gender NGOs. In Cambodia, the proportion of parliamentary seats held by women increased from 5.8% in 97 to 8.2% in 2000 to 20.3% in 2015. So having seen many women demonstrate their equal competence in socially valued masculine domains, urban residents can make sense of abstract discourses of gender equality. Now... By highlighting rural urban migrants' observations of relatively more egalitarian spaces, I do not mean to downplay Phnom Penh's persistent inequalities. Men continue to dominate public fora, such as Parliament, Trade Unions, the Government Private Sector Forum, and Chambers of Commerce. Gender pay gaps prevail, and work, women's work is often precarious, unsafe, dangerous. In addition, the police are unsympathetic to domestic violence. Furthermore, cities are not inevitably disruptive. Factory work hours are long, tightly controlled. Breaks are brief, with time only for workers to gulp a sugary drink, guzzle a plate of rice and fatty meat, chat about bundles completed, and hasten back, as I observed during field work. So because of the very high cost of transport in Phnom Penh, factory workers have limited mobility. They typically associate with other migrant workers, not necessarily learning from the city's rich diversity. Makara, a 23-year-old rural urban uh, garment worker, says, We don't go out much. We just go back and forth between factory and home. Translated. Notwithstanding such caveats, cities appear to accelerate social change by raising the opportunity costs of the male breadwinner model amplifying exposure to women in socially valued domains and enabling collective discussions and mutually reinforcing iterative experiments. This sustains a positive feedback loop. New section, 
Social change is slower in villages. Again, social change is also occurring in Cambodian villages, but at a slower pace, with less support for the urban adage that women can do what men can do. To explain this, I turned to the village cafe in Candel. At first glance, it was quite unremarkable. Red plastic chairs clustered on a dirt floor, sheltered by a corrugated iron roof. On weekends, it became fiery and animated. Male patrons were transfixed on televised Thai boxing. Weekdays, more relaxed. Men's discussions centred on farming and national politics. In the past decade, they had become much more critical of the government. Their awareness of popular dissent had increased through access to independent radio owing to an improved signal, Facebook, smartphones, and return migrants' narratives. So by hearing widespread critique, rural men became more confident in their collective capacity to challenge the government. Drought was a major concern. Many had lost crops the previous year, wasting expenditure on fertilizers, pesticides, bamboo and insecticides, so decided not to replant. This situation was worsened by a government bridge-building project that temporarily blocked water flow to their fields. Having lost confidence in their commune council, that's the local government, some farmers had formed a group, crowdsourcing funds for a generator to pump water from the creek to irrigate vegetable crops. I asked Sana, a 46-year-old male farmer, if there were any women at the meeting. He said, and I quote, No, it's a man's job. Women are considered as housewives. This activity is for men. When men decide what to do, women will follow. Men are head of the family. In our village, men are doers, women are helpers. Men undertake most of the work and become more knowledgeable. That was translated. This account was widely corroborated for both this specific initiative and collective discussions more broadly. Men's leadership was typically explained with reference to their, and I quote, longer legs, which sort of means better traveled, larger social networks, and more knowledgeable. By contrast, rural Cambodian uh, women have traditionally stayed at home, tending pigs and chickens, caring for large families, with few labor-saving tools. While rural women do chat with their neighbors in passing, expressing frustrations about the quality of their children's education or their husband's drinking, such discussions are only brief, hastened by the relentless demands of care work. Only men have the liberty to un unwind at the cafe after farming, returning home when food is ready. Several rural women identified leisure time as an inequality and lamented their dearth of free time. Others were less overtly critical. They would like their husbands to help, but regarded gender divisions of labor as inevitable, and so assumed strategic silence to minimize conflict. By gathering at the cafe, learning from those with new sources of information, men are regarded as more knowledgeable. These perceptions influence everyday interactions. Feeling less informed, some women are reluctant to speak out on local and national socio-political issues, fearing mistakes and consequent mockery. Further, men at the cafe see their peers publicly criticizing the government and so feel emboldened. Meanwhile, women are less exposed to public dissent, so often lack confidence in collective resistance. Villages in Kandal divulged that no one had initiated the idea of women's public leadership. I think this can be understood in terms of internalized ideologies and norm perceptions. So first, Lacking exposure to women successfully undertaking leadership roles, 
few express confidence in their equal competence. Second, while some did privately wish for a female candidate, few anticipated wider support. As one female village chief explained, and I quote, I never dreamt I would become a village chief. In this village, it's unheard of for a woman to be in authority. I thought people would react badly to me. So even when elected to commune councils, women are typically given less prestigious, less remunerative roles, focusing on women's matters, you know, menial, voluntary work, preparing the tea for their male counterparts. Few rural participants seem troubled by women's absence in public fora, explaining that men already represented the family. While a minority were privately critical, they did not wish to be the odd one out, encroaching on male terrain. This is encapsulated in the narratives below, from se below, I say, that I'll read now, um, from separate interviews. So Nakre, a 54-year-old uh, rural fem female home-based uh, trader in Candal, said, This is how we divide the work. At home we talk, exchange ideas, husband and wife. But in public, men go out and discuss ideas amongst themselves. For my whole life, women do not go out and discuss. There's a lot of work to do at home. Women go if they're invited, but there's no point in them going if the husband is already there. It was translated. And then put a 35-year-old uh, rural female fruit seller at a nearby market said, If any woman wants to spend time at the cafe, she will be badly talked about. You cannot leave behind your housework. People value you because of your housework. Generally, women are not free. Rachana, a 24-year-old rural garment worker, said, Men tend to discuss amongst themselves. They don't involve women. Women are busy cooking, cleaning, farming. It's only men who are free. That's life. There's nothing that women can do to change it. But I want to change it. I want men to pay more attention to what's going on in the household, to pay more attention to their wives and baby, and less time drinking. Akara, a 22-year-old female student in Phnom Penh, originally from rural Takao, said, In the rural area, it's the men who decide everything in the house. Sometimes they won't even ask the wife. Men in the rural area, they act like they're king. So in sum, by sharing ideas at the cafe, men come to be regarded as knowledgeable and thus naturally better leaders. Rural gender inequalities are also shaped by gender divisions of labour, though these are changing. As one cow farmer in Candell explained, historically you would often hear a husband say to his wife, and I quote, you only live by depending on me. Middle-aged and elderly rural women tend to present themselves as dependents, reliant on male breadwinners for both income and ideas about the outside world. They seemed reluctant to complain, expressing limited sense of entitlement, recognition of alternatives, or fear of their husband's anger. As Chan, a 39-year-old garment worker in Takao, surmised, Historically, there were only two things for women, housework and helping with farming. Women didn't have anything to do. They just did all the cooking, the cleaning, looking after cows and helped with the rice farming. So these gender divisions of labour influence young women's ambitions. A female student on a full scholarship at Phnom Penh University explained that back in her village, young women's expectations were limited to marriage and motherhood. Only two women in her village were high school graduates. Many had just married at age 16. I quote, In Khmer tradition, the girl no need to be high knowledge, just do the wife. They just treat the girl like she doesn't have abilities. Sometimes they don't even want the girl to go to school because it's not safe, because it's so far. 
Another student, the daughter of a, a housewife and rice farmer in an isolated village, said, if you just see a lot of women working as housewives, you view women as someone who is incapable of doing something else. Your perception of women would just be like that. So why would I send my daughters Phnom Penh for education? Back in the province, I never imagined I could be a teacher at a university, a CEO or a leader. So while rural girls increasingly seek education and employment, their ambitions are often limited to running a business near home, to accommodate housework and stay near familiar areas. Some do wonder whether girls are as intelligent as boys, but often lack the confidence to go against the tide of public opinion. Even if young women question these norms and seek independent mobility, Many are constrained by parents and husbands who are worried about safety, sexual propriety, and neighborhood gossip. Now, these concerns have lessened in the past decade, for sure. Uh, mobility is increasing with mass road building, yeah, motorbike ownership, ongoing school building programs, increased proximity, alleviating concerns about daughter safety. With government investment in infrastructure and Cambodia's high population density, many villages now have police posts, clinics, and schools. Such proximity increases contraceptive access, so the total fertility rate halved between 1990 and 2012, from 6 to 3. This reduces the volume of care work and alleviates time constraints on female education and employment. Besides lesser concerns about safety and time constraints, rural families are increasingly aware of the financial benefits of women's earnings in the garment industry, tourism, Phnom Penh's burgeoning service sector. So given these economic incentives, many rural families have foregone concerns about social respect. With more women migrating for wage work, it has become more widely accepted, especially in recent years when drought has threatened agricultural livelihoods. And compared to the male-dominated construction industry, garment work is relatively better and more regularly paid, enabling high remittances. Women also tend to remit more income than men. So in this context, some fathers even wished for daughters, citing their economic potential as garment workers. One farmer I interviewed proclaimed, and I quote, his unluckiness in only having sons. New session. The effects of rising women's employment in rural areas. So social change was slower in villages. But is it accelerated by, by rising female employment? To answer this question and test that widely accepted hypothesis, I explored how rural garment factories have influenced gender relations. All employed rural, urban rural women expressed delight in being able to improve their family's economic situation. They reiterated increased self-esteem and pride. Some had started sharing care work with their husbands. Indeed, when we arrived in uh, Takao, when we first arrived, we found the husband preparing lunch, which we had when his wife returned from the garment factory. Another disruptive practice, another disruptive gender performance was women motorbiking en masse. You know, historically, women were referred to as short-legged, meaning not venturing further than the fields. But now many women are independently mobile, going out to provide for the family as narrated by Rachni, a 60-year-old uh, rural woman whose daughter was working for an internet company in Phnom Penh. For my whole life, women have followed men. Historically, wives just followed their husbands. Women couldn't go very far. Women could only move around the kitchen. 
that's a sort of Cambodian colloquialism, only men could get out of the house. So they could get more information. Women have children, so they don't have a lot of time for anything else. Previously, women did not have higher knowledge. But now, you look at society and you see a lot of women working, just like men. It's translated. So the effects of female employment vary by occupation. Traders who independently liaised with and learnt from others were particularly confident. Kim, 35 years old, uh, recently started motorbiking to a village 30 kilometres away to sell uh, 100 kilos of local fruit, as encouraged by her sister, who works in Phnom Penh. Since starting her business, Kim excitedly emphasized that she has more ideas to share with her neighbors. Great pride in her financial contributions and a more independent mobility, she said, and I quote, If you met me five years ago, I wouldn't have anything to tell you. I was really scared, really careful with words. I was more of a listener. I would not even try to engage in the conversation. I would always be afraid of making a mistake, afraid that people getting angry with me. Before I only stayed at home, except to ten fruit trees, I was afraid of my husband. I would not argue with him. If I wanted to do something and he rejected it, I would just follow him. But since I've been making my own income, my words have become stronger. When I got exposed to the marketplace, I gained new ideas. I told my husband that even if he disagrees with me, I will go ahead. He's changed a lot. Now he is very supportive. And I'm braver. Before, before, I depended on my husband, but now I want to try out some ideas on my own. I've got to know other people out there. It's fun. And that was translated. However, Kim's account was kind of unusual in our sample. Rural women workers generally felt unappreciated. It was rare for husbands to cook for their wives returning from the factories. Many women complained about their husbands becoming, and I quote, more relaxed which generally meant drinking all day, uh, but still regarding themselves as breadwinners and household heads. Yet despite their newfound independent incomes, rural, very few rural women appear to even contemplate divorce. The rarity of divorce and ensuing concerns about risk meant that it was rarely considered an option. There was no point complaining to the police about a husband. It would be embarrassing and the wife would end up paying for his release when they inevitably reunited. Rural women's struggles are, are encapsulated in the following interview extracts. I quote from Dara, I am the main income provider, but never once has my husband recognized that. Uh, Mao, a 39-year-old rural uh, garment worker, says, A lot of my friends complain that their husbands are just staying at home, doing nothing. You come home, you feel very underappreciated. Even though you bring money home, they do not appreciate that is what some of my friends complain. However much they earn, social change is very limited. Not only husbands, but the community does not appreciate us women. It's translated. Likewise for Peruna, a 36-year-old male farmer in Kandal said, Women have become more economically significant in the family, especially when men lose a lot. You know, thinking of agricultural li uh, livelihoods there. But mm, some men wait for their wives to cook for them. And the limited change in perceptions, it's not just upon men, it's also among women who work in the factory. Men are still seen as important in the home. So this continuity in rural gender relations is partly due to exposure and association. While women do now travel to garment factories, their time is tightly constrained, curbing networking and, and learning. Rural factory workers often regarded men as more knowledgeable and so deferred to their decisions. 
Few rural women had seen married men cooking, so did not contemplate such redistribution, let alone push for it. So, thus, although rural women are increasingly important financial providers, given garment factory employment and climate breakdown, men still tend to be regarded as more knowledgeable and better leaders. This partly reflects gender inequalities in leisure time and care work, but there are caveats. People's experiences and perspectives were mediated by their age, marital status, occupation, economic context, and access to government services. Of the three major female-dominated occupations in the village, i.e. garment factory workers, traders, and and farmers, traders appeared the most confident as public speakers. They liaised with a broad range of people, sometimes collaboratively, sometimes through struggle, but each time learned and expanded their horizons, uh, with Kim being an example of that. So, it's almost over, gang, conclusion. Um, This article has explored the causes of growing support for gender equality via comparative, qualitative, rural-urban fieldwork. It has examined how the impact of women's employment is mediated by rural-urban location, to revisit the widely accepted theory that women's employment boosts support for gender equality. This rural-urban contrast is important because although many gender scholars affirm the importance of local context and the truism that city dwellers are typically more supportive of gender equality, we know very little about the causes of rural-urban differences. Going forwards, Others might contribute to this field through quantitative work with subnational data to provide descriptive data on rural-urban differences, field experiments, randomizing urban, rural-urban migration to explore whether city living does cause a shift in gender relations, or comparative qualitative research to understand the causes of these effects. So and we also need to understand when and why cities do not undermine gender inequalities, you know, for example, on gender-based violence, housework, and urban design. The impact of urban residents is likely mediated by occupation, quality of services, and the sectoral composition of job growth. Those caveats aside, my comparative qualitative research suggests that Cambodian cities disrupt gender inequalities because they enable three key processes. One, shifts in perceived interest. Two, exposure to women demonstrating equal competence in socially valued domains. And three, association, mutual learning, collective critique. In Phnom Penh, the opportunity cost of women staying at home has increased with the growth of in economic sectors seeking women laborers and rising living costs. With the ensuing rise in flexibility in gender divisions of labor, city residents have come to recognize its economic advantages. The resulting exposure to women successfully performing socially valued roles has undermined gender ideologies. People increasingly regard women as equally competent and they anticipate social support. This shift in beliefs has fostered behavioral change, enabling a positive feedback loop. These shifts in in interest, exposure and association are also happening in rural Cambodia, albeit more slowly. Rural remoteness and homogeneity curb exposure to alternatives, dampening confidence in the possibility of social change, deterring deviation. Besides highlighting the disruptive power of cities, this article has demonstrated a key driver of social change, namely association. Although many rural Cambodian women are now important economic contributors, they rarely share and learn from diverse others. In my rural sites, Local drought and political authoritarianism were always discussed in the village cafe, an exclusively male terrain.
by gathering together, rural men learn from others with new sources, build on each other's contributions, creatively exploring diverse solutions and accumulating expertise. Shut out of these conversations by norm perceptions and domestic responsibilities, rural women are thus regarded as less knowledgeable, less suited to leadership. So men continue to be valorized as more knowledgeable, natural leaders. Rural politics remains male-dominated, notwithstanding growing female labor force participation. This link between everyday public discussion, spaces, perceived knowledge and support for women's leadership is a fairly novel contribution. Some scholars argue that by seeing women perform historically male-dominated roles, others will come to see them as equally competent in a broad range of other domains, such as leadership. I suggest that such equivocation is not automatic. As we see from rural Cambodia, flexibility in gender divisions of labour is insufficient to accelerate wider progress towards gender equality. Interconnected, diverse and densely populated cities play a crucial but hitherto neglected role in amplifying exposure, association and collective critique, reinforcing snowballing processes of social change. By examining the causes of rural-urban differences, this article thus reveals important catalysts of gender equality. Okay, that's your lot. Um, I'm Dr. Alice Evans. This article is published in Gender and Society. If you've made it this far, thank you very much. Bye. To read the full working paper, please visit the link below. And to learn more about the Building State Capability Program, visit bsc.cid.harvard.edu.